good morning. A few weeks ago, I took a, uh, a trip to the local hardware store because I needed to buy some sand for a yard project. Now, I'm not sure if you have shopped for sand lately. Maybe some of you have. Keith told me he was shopping for sand. But luckily, sand is not particularly expensive. In fact, you can buy a 50-pound bag of sand for just a couple of dollars. But if you, much like me, if you have not shopped recently, then you may not be familiar, familiar with just how annoying it is to pick up from off the ground a heavy bag of sand and, and carry it any distance and load it into the back of a vehicle. And as I was lifting and carrying these 50-pound bags and loading them into the back of my car, I thought to myself, you know, this seems a lot more difficult than it needs to be. You see, these plastic bags, they don't even have handles And they also have just enough extra space inside of them so that the sand can move and it can slide around and it can cause the weight to become very uneven and really awkward to support. And as I I look back at my experience with those bags of sand, I began to ask, why do they put sand in plastic bags? Why not put it in something that is far more user-friendly and much easier to pick up and to carry? And it didn't take me long to come to this conclusion. You see, the flimsy plastic bag is for the benefit of the company who sells the sand and not for the benefit of the person who is carrying the sand. Simply put, plastic bags are cheap, even cheaper than the expensive sand that they hold. And the plastic bags, as you can see, I found out they are designed to contain the sand just long enough to be sold at the store, but not necessarily long enough to survive the ride home in your car. You see, plastic bags weren't chosen with the carrier in mind. They were chosen because they're cheap. They were chosen because sometimes they adequately hold sand. And they were chosen because they undoubtedly increase a company's profit margins. If sand suppliers were were truly concerned with the persons carrying the sand, they could have packaged the sand in something like this. If you'll flip to the next slide. This thing has handles, right? And it has a a lid, and you can even reuse this container after you've taken the sand out of it. But you see, this container cost 18 and a half times more than the entire bag of sand itself. So practicality wins out. And thus, when we need sand, we are forced to carry it in flimsy plastic bags. And so here's my point. There are some things in this life that just weren't designed for people to carry. They weren't made for us. They weren't designed with humans and our limitations in mind. And as we open our Bibles this morning to uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he's going to point out to us one of those very things that fallen man is ill-equipped and too weak to carry on his own. So open with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, as, as Pastor Virgil alluded to. And since we're going to be picking up in the middle of the book here, And we're only going to examine a very small passage in an otherwise important and lengthy book. I have to start by giving you some background information. This will allow us to to be in the right frame of mind to understand what is being said and why it is being said. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was commissioned by God to serve in the southern kingdom of Judah between the years of 627 and 586 B.C. And at this point in history, the nation of Israel had split into two separate kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel to the north. You had the kingdom of Judah to the south. 
And Israel, the northern kingdom, because of their sin and rebellion toward God and his covenant, they'd already been judged by God and they had promptly been exiled and kicked out of the promised land. Now Judah, on the other hand, during Jeremiah's tenure, they found themselves still in the promised land. But as we will see, they were very quickly hurtling toward the same judgment and punishment as well. Now Jeremiah's job as a prophet was threefold. There were three things that God was instructing Jeremiah to point out. Job number one was this. He was to point out that Judah was in violation of their covenant with God, and he was to call Judah to repentance. Job number two, he was to point out that if they continued to sin and failed to repent, then judgment would soon be coming. And job number three, Jeremiah was to point them toward a future where God would create a new and better covenant. With his people. And as I was reading through the book of Jeremiah and I was pondering Jeremiah's three responsibilities toward Judah, it was these two verses in chapter 9 that, that in particular stopped me in my tracks. And after reading these verses, I knew one day that I would be coming back and, and preaching a message from them. But what I didn't know was just how powerful and how convicting and how forward looking these verses would turn out to be. So let's read together this morning. Jeremiah 9, verses 23-24. If you've found your place there and you're ready to read with me, say amen. Amen. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you for sharing with us the story of your covenant history with Israel. Thank you for recording for us the gospel of grace that we see established and, and manifested in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts today to see how every word on every page points us to Jesus. We pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. Now, as we work our way through the text today, we're going to discover three specific conclusions. And I've designed these points to be simple and easy for us to remember. What I want to do is I want, you to, cha- I want to challenge you to memorize these three points And I want you to use them to recall the lessons from this passage. Here are the the three conclusions. Number one, people are predictable. Number two, God never changes. And number three, God changes people. So let's start with conclusion number one. People are predictable. In verse 23, God begins by clearly letting the reader know that he is the one speaking. He is directly dictating to Jeremiah the words that he wanted the kingdom of Judah to hear. And as we read in verse 23, God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And we have to stop for a moment there, and we have to think about why God would say these specific things. In many ways, human beings are complex creatures, both physically and mentally. We have very complicated biological systems, and our minds can create very detailed mental and emotional structures based 
on our physiology and our life experiences. And while all of that is very true, human beings can also prove themselves to be unbelievably simple and predictable, can't we? In my limited years of life on earth, I've come to realize that whenever people, and myself included, whenever we have more of or we possess a higher quality of something than someone else, one thing we sure love to do is let other people know about it. We love to boast, don't we? Did you ever get the highest grade or or maybe the top evaluation on a test? And even if you hardly said a word, people could probably tell by that unmistakable smile of pride or satisfaction on your face. Did you lead the conference in rushing yards your senior year of high school, or did you get the lead role in the school production? How many of your friends have heard your stories about that season or about that play? Did you make all the right moves and get the best deal on an item on Black Friday? Did you then post your accomplishments on Instagram and Facebook so that everyone else could be jealous of your good fortunes? Whether these examples hit close to home for you or not, we can all confess that we have done something like this at one point in our lives or another. We all boast. We all like to take the things that we have a lot of and show it to the people who have less. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel superior. And it feeds the need of our fallen and sinful hearts to stand out from and stand above others. Now, as it pertained to the people living in the kingdom of Judah, some consider themselves to be in possession of great wisdom. In fact, the leaders and the religious elite of the day would often claim that they had heard directly from God, just as Jeremiah was actually hearing directly from God. And in these false claims from these leaders, they would continually promise peace to a nation where God had not promised peace. And because they consider themselves to be wise and because they assumed that they possessed a greater knowledge and a wisdom compared to everyone else, God was getting ready to point out the truth and to expose them all as frauds because their wisdom was not founded upon a fear of the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 8, God says this, The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them. And to answer God's rhetorical question, there is none. There was no true wisdom in them, only sinful pride and blatant disregard for God's commands. It's one thing to express confidence in something that you do possess, but it's an entirely different kind of foolishness to boast in something that you claim to have, but truly don't. And that is exactly the position in which Judah found themselves, and God was using Jeremiah the prophet to point this out. But as we continue reading, wisdom wasn't the only thing in which the people of Judah were boasting, was it? They, as God makes it clear, were also unwisely putting their faith in their own strength, or more specifically, in their military might. It was true that the nation of Israel had many times won battles in which they were outnumbered and overmatched. It is true that they had also won battles where they were clearly superior in the larger and better trained army. But it's also true that God was always the real determining factor in these battles. It was God who was deciding which nation would be the victor and which nation would be conquered. But now, after all the favor that God had shown Judah in their history, they were arrogant enough to take credit for and boast in something for which they were not ultimately responsible. Their military victories were intended to display the glory of God, not to display the greatness of Judah. 
They were usurping or commandeering the glory that was due to God, and they were claiming it for themselves. And in verse 23, God was warning them that they needed to cut it out. Listen to how God describes the enemy that was heading toward Judah as part of his judgment. You can find this in Jeremiah 6, verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and they have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. Now, whatever confidence that Judah was placing in their strength and in their military prowess, whatever boldness or or courage that they possessed as a result of their own supposed might, that was all going to quickly dissolve when God unleashed the Babylonian warriors upon them. Judah was headed for a world of hurt, and God wasn't going to bail them out or grant them the victory this time. God was using Jeremiah to point them to this approaching reality. And as if all of this weren't enough, God also had to warn Judah not to boast in their riches. Now, this is a a pretty common biblical principle, isn't it? Jesus in the New Testament often speaks of our love of and our over-dependence upon money. We know that money itself is not the problem, but it is our love of money that leads us to sin. This issue was a problem in 600 B.C. It was a a problem in Jesus' day, and it remains a critical problem problem today. But what makes this particular statement from God even more powerful is when we look at how the rich people in Judah had acquired their great wealth. Now, were they profitable and hardworking farmers? Maybe had they invested their money wisely? Had they maybe experienced a boom in livestock production? Well, no, they were simply preying upon the needy and the vulnerable. They were abusive, manipulative, they were quick to exploit the very people that God had commanded them to protect. They were ravenous, and they lacked compassion. The wealthy people of Judah had swindled their way to the top, and they had absolutely no remorse for their greed. Listen to God's words in Jeremiah chapter 5. He says, Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? One last time, Judah was depending on something that was completely incapable of saving them. No amount of wealth in the world could hold back the forthcoming judgment of God. And although it was going to fall on deaf ears, God in his mercy was using Jeremiah once again to point out their violations of the covenant. And what I really want you to see is that God's warnings here in Jeremiah chapter 9, they are not just general proverbs. God wasn't just telling Judah that as a general rule, he would be happier with them if they boasted less in their wisdom might and riches. No, God is indicting the kingdom of Judah, and these are his charges against them. And if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, if you've ever studied anything about the nation of Israel, if you've ever read and been through the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah, one thing that you cannot help but see is the absolute predictability of fallen, sinful people to disobey God 
and refuse to heed his warnings. The Old Testament turns out to be a revealing case study on human sin and depravity. What makes all people predictable is the fallen condition of every human heart. Hearts that are by nature against God and his rule will always produce rebellion and sin. Which brings me to this question. If God knew that Judah wasn't going to listen, if he knew that they weren't going to repent of their foolish self-confidence and live in obedience to his covenant with them, then why did he even bother warning them? What was the point? And as I pondered that question myself, I, I came to a couple of potential answers, but the one that stood out above the others was this. God had Jeremiah point out these charges against Judah so that they would know exactly what they were guilty of. And so that we, who have without question done the very same things that they did, so that we would know what we are guilty of. As corrupted creatures, the the perfect law of God, the righteous standard of His holiness is too much for us to carry. In fact, because of our fallen state, we must say that it is impossible for us to carry. Many refuse to even attempt to uphold God's law, and the rest of us who do, we, we strap it to our backs, and immediately we crumble under its weight. That's why the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 3 that we have all, every single one of us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, the New Living Translation, in an attempt to encapsulate Paul's intention, they, they translate that verse this way. They say, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. In verse 23, God has laid out three of the violations that Judah had committed against his commands. And because of this sin and because of their lack of repentance, judgment was coming. But in verse 24, God pivots And in stark contrast to the three indictments of Judah's disobedience, God declares once again to his people exactly who he is. He describes his character and he lists the qualities that they should have been prizing and prioritizing. I've titled this section, God Never Changes. Let's read verse 24 again. It says, but let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Here we see that if man ever had a reason to boast in anything, it would be in this fact. That he knows the Lord relationally, and that he understands intellectually who God, Yahweh Elohim, really is. And just who does God say that He is. Well, here he gives them three of his perfect qualities to help paint a picture for the people of Judah and for those of us who read his word today. First, God points his people to his practice of steadfast love. Now, our instinct when we hear the word love is to think primarily in an emotional sense. And while emotion isn't absent from the concept of steadfast love, the term used here refers specifically to the action of covenant loyalty. What it means is that God is perfectly faithful toward his covenants. He has never, he would never, he will never violate his covenant promises. God always accomplishes what he says and God never breaks his terms. His love for man is demonstrated in large part through his loyalty to his covenants. For the kingdom of Judah, this meant loyalty to the Mosaic covenant. God promised that if his people 
whom he had rescued out of the bondage in Egypt, if they would worship him and obey his commands, then he would be with them and he would bless them in the land in which he had delivered them. But if the people failed to uphold their part of the covenant, then God would judge them and he would remove them from that promised land. What we need to see here is that God is always loyal to his covenants, while man, in contrast, always fails to be completely faithful to his. God then has Jeremiah Jeremiah point out to Judah his characteristic of perfect justice. In preparation for this message, I read one commentator. He described justice as honorable relations in every transaction. Now, as an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful being, only God is perfectly just. For only he can know without any doubt who is guilty and who is innocent. Only he can clearly see our intent and our motives. And armed with that perfect knowledge, God never condemns the innocent and he never acquits the guilty. God is completely fair. When the end of this world comes and when the final judgment has taken place, not one soul confined to the judgment of hell will be able to look at God and say, I don't deserve this. Justice means handing out exactly what is deserved. And in the realm of human relationships, God delights when we uphold justice as well. Scripture repeatedly commands God's people to hand out what is deserved. It commands that the guilty be punished, and it commands that the innocent be acquitted. The word condemns false testimony, and it prizes truthfulness. But man, on the other hand, in his sinfulness, only really wants justice applied in the instances that will benefit him. And in a world where self-interest and self-preservation reign supreme, acts of injustice are sure to follow. If it hasn't become clear by now, what God is doing through the prophet Jeremiah is showing Judah and by extension showing us today exactly just how different he really is. God practices steadfast love and justice. We do not. And this brings God to his final characteristic in the passage, which is righteousness. Simply put, God always does what is right according to the standard of his own perfect nature and character. God is not held to some standard of right and wrong that is external to himself, nor is his standard of righteousness arbitrary. It's not based on how he feels from one day to the next. God's standard is based on God's perfection. His perfect character is the standard. And he always acts in absolute agreement with his character, never contradictory to it. We could go so far as to say that God can only do what is right because God can only act in accordance with his attributes and his character. But once again, man, in the most visible of contrasts, man does not live in righteousness. Man does not do what is right in the eyes of God. Man does not act in accordance with God's character. Whether someone lived in ancient Israel or whether they live in Pine Bluff, North Carolina today, no one can be righteous on their own. The corruption of sin introduced in the Garden of Eden through our descendant Adam, it infects us all the way down to our very core, preventing any possibility of perfect righteousness from us. Only God practices perfect righteousness on this earth. Only he can truly make the claim of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And this makes evident to all mankind that God is far different than us. He is holy. He is set apart. He is immeasurably greater than the human beings that he created. 
And when God dictates to Judah that he delights in steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, he's not only stating his nature and character, but he is once again pointing out just how far they would need to go to meet his standard. But if God knew that Judah would never be able to achieve those things, if he knew that sin would always come between man and himself, then I think we must ask again the question, why did God say it? Why did God bring up these qualities? Why did he command Judah to do them if he knew that they they wouldn't? And beyond that, that they couldn't. Why does God make so clear the standard to which man could never achieve? Why did God emphasize the fact that he is perfect, that he would never compromise his character, and that his standard would never be lessened to allow for man's depravity? Those are big, big questions. Questions that need an answer. And if there's no answer, brothers and sisters, then we're all in deep trouble. If one day we stand before God and he is set to judge us based on how well we were able to uphold his standard and follow his law, then much like the kingdom of Judah, judgment will be headed our way. But take heart, because there is an answer. And his name is Jesus. For you see, the Bible doesn't end in Jeremiah chapter 9. The story doesn't find its conclusion there. What would follow in the course of human history after Judah's judgment and exile establishes our third and the most glorious of all possible conclusions, which is this. God changes people. What God has done for us through his words in the book of Jeremiah is create what we call in literary terms conflict. Verse 23 states that there's a clear problem, man's sinfulness. Verse 24 states that there's a perfect standard, God's character. And up to this point, we've not been given any hope that these two opposing forces can be reconciled. There's no imminent resolution to the conflict. I want you to think about some of your favorite books or movies. Many of them use this same type of contrast to create a conflict or an unsolvable problem, don't they? But then what happens? Someone miraculously or heroically finds a way to resolve the issue. Forgive me for this reference, but in Star Wars, Darth Vader and his Death Star, they threaten the safety of the entire universe. Problem identified, conflict created. Luke Skywalker fires a fatal shot into the only vulnerable area of the Death Star. Death Star explodes. Universe saved. Problem eliminated. Conflict is resolved. God's message to the kingdom of Judah presents to us the great conflict. It told Judah and it reminds us that we're going to be measured against the standard of a perfect, holy, and righteous God. And against that standard, man's failure will be exposed. The situation for Judah was indeed desperate, friends. The conflict was insurmountable. What they would need, in fact, what we would all need is a miracle. But that miracle... That sacrificial hero, that resolution to the conflict is exactly what Jeremiah would point us to in the 31st chapter of his book. Starting in verse 33, we hear Jeremiah say these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And that day, that day that God was speaking of here, the one where everything would change, where he would make a new covenant, where he would remember man's sin no more. I'm happy to tell you, brothers and sisters, that day has come. Almost 600 years after Jeremiah spoke these words, Jesus Christ left heaven and he entered into humanity. He lived 33 years and he, as both fully God and fully man, perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God's covenant with Israel. Jesus never boasted in wisdom or might or riches. He only delighted the Father because like God, he too perfectly practiced steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Jesus of Nazareth, untainted by the curse of sin, but tempted in every way that a human can be tempted, he accomplished what was required by God. And in the plot twist, to end all plot twists, in the greatest and the most unprecedented example of conflict resolution of all time, Jesus voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice on the cross, trading places with us. He experienced and he endured the shame and death that our sin deserves so that we would not have to. After three days in a tomb, God raised up this Jesus. And in so doing, he gave evidence that his sacrifice on the cross was a sufficient atonement for our sin. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, by making him both Lord and Savior of our lives, the perfect righteousness and sinlessness that Jesus accomplished is thereby credited to us. Our sins are eternally forgiven, and God views us as if we had met his perfect standard ourselves. And if you're sitting out there today, maybe you're streaming this message online, or or maybe you're even listening to it on a podcast. If you're sitting there today and you're gripped with fear and panic because you know that, like the people of Judah, you have sinned against God and you have fallen short of his glorious standard. If you know that without God forgiving you and radically resolving the conflict that exists between you and him, that you will receive his eternal judgment. If that's you, then I want you to know that God has given the church a great message and he has intended for you to hear it. Eternal salvation and forgiveness of sin is a free gift from God. Repent, turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and God will forgive you of those sins. Not only that, God will change you at your very core. He will give you a new heart. Today at this very minute, you have access to a full pardon by God. And that pardon is not contingent on your ability to obey God's law. No access to this most wonderful salvation comes only through faith. Access to a total heart transformation comes by God's grace. It surely can't be based on what we have done, but only on what Christ has done. It surely can't be based on any trust we have in our own abilities, but on our trust in Christ's atoning work. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as proof that when God says any man who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, he means it. Are you in need of that forgiveness today? It's yours if you want it. 
If God has done some serious work inside of you today and you are for the first time deeply grieved or convicted by your sin and you know that today is the day that you must believe in Jesus as both your Lord and Savior, please reach out to us. If you're here in person, come see me or Pastor Virgil after the service. If you're watching on the live stream or or listening on a podcast, send us a comment, send us an email, call the church office. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you start your walk in following Jesus. You see, there's a church right here full of Christ followers, people whom God has graciously changed from the inside out who are walking that very same walk. And we'd love for you to join us here. And it's now to these Christ followers, those sitting right here, those watching and listening online that I must very quickly turn my attention. We've just seen in great detail how the verses in Jeremiah point those who are lost to the gospel. But to where or to what or to whom do they point the Christian? What are we supposed to do with the facts that people are predictable, that God never changes and that God changes people? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to give ourselves this very strong and sober warning. When 21st century Christians, when we read a passage like the one today in Jeremiah chapter 9, the greatest temptation is to take those things, the steadfast love, the justice, and the righteousness, and too often we try to pick them up. And once again, we, we attempt to carry them under our own strength. We think that because we're saved, because we've been forgiven of our sins, we assume our need for the gospel is finished. We wrongly determine that it's up to us now to prove to God that we are somehow worthy of his favor that he has granted us in Christ Jesus. But the truth is, beloved, these things are like 5,000 pound bags of sand. They weren't meant for us to pick up and to carry, at least not on our own. Remember, it is Jesus who fulfilled the law. He is the one who has already carried these things on our behalf. So in response to God's grace in our lives, we too must remember that he has changed our hearts. He has also made us a new creation. And instead of seeking to prove ourselves as self-righteous before God, we simply seek to be more like our Savior, Jesus. If we follow Jesus, then God will make us more like Jesus. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit now dwelling inside of us will transform the theoretical into the actual. And here's what I mean. We know that God calls his people to steadfast love. He calls us to covenant loyalty. And when we follow Jesus and we grow in our relationship with him, we start to become more faithful husbands and wives in the, get this, the covenant of marriage. Not only that, following Jesus will help us become more faithful servants in the covenant of church membership. Let me ask you this. Are you a more Christ-like spouse now than you were two years ago? Are you a more sacrificial and faithful participant in this church than you were two years ago? These are some of the areas in which growing in Christ-likeness brings to realization that characteristic of steadfast love. When we follow Jesus, we also grow in our desire for justice, and we grieve more and more over the injustices In this world, we fight for the innocent to be released and for the guilty to be held accountable. And we seek to find those who are in need. And we rally to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to meet those needs. So, again, I ask you are you more observant and more attuned to finding and meeting the needs of others today than you were ever before? 
Christ's likeness produces justice within us. And finally, when we follow Jesus, we are driven by a spirit-led desire to do what is right in the eyes of God. No longer are we rationalizing and looking for loopholes to justify our sinful behavior. We thirst for righteousness. We long for sin to be identified in our hearts so we can confess it and repent of it. And we yearn for the day when we are presented as holy and blameless before God. Are you more concerned about knowing and obeying God's word now than you were when you walked into church this morning? If you can answer yes to these questions, then praise God for the new and better covenant of grace. Praise God that the heavy lifting was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And praise God that this grace pointed out by the prophet Jeremiah is available to everyone by faith and faith alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a a privilege it is to gather before you today as the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your holy and your true word that encourages and convicts. It, It edifies and it sanctifies. Lord, I pray that your message to us through the prophet Jeremiah will penetrate deeply into our hearts. For those needing salvation, Lord, I ask that it would draw them to you. For those of us who are saved, may it bring us back to dependency on the gospel message of grace. Strengthen us to follow Christ. Equip us to serve as he served. And burden us to bring the gospel to the lost. Lord, we pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.